And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. It is Tuesday, February 1st. Derek Van Riper here with Al Melchior. On this episode, we are going to focus on the things that make the 2022 fantasy baseball season different or challenging or confusing, or at least the things that we expect to make this season confusing, because they're making the draft board and draft strategy uh, difficult and unique. So we're going to dig into a bunch of topics that have been on our minds throughout this winter, stuff that was probably discussed in various PitchCon panels over the weekend. So if you watched any of those as they were happening, or if you're starting to catch up on those once those become available on demand, you'll definitely get some common themes that probably emerge within this episode and a few upcoming ones over what we saw there. Alice, the first pod we've done in 2022. How is everything going for you? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's there's no real spring training uh, on the horizon, but uh, yeah, this feels like spring training for me, <laughs> getting, uh, <laughs> getting the cobwebs off. Uh, but uh, yeah, good to be back at it. Yeah, me, yeah, me too. It's... Um it's kind of become this thing where I don't I really stop podcasting anymore. I mean, there's a couple of weeks after the playoffs and right around the Christmas New Year's time where there's less recording than usual. But it's just like it's a year round activity now and I love it. But I <laughs> totally understand that feeling. Even after a couple of weeks off for me, I have that. How do I do this again? And about five minutes in, it all kind of comes back together. So I think uh, we're going to be in great shape here today. Uh, so there's uh, several subtopics within that, what is different about 2022. And for me, the, my process when I start to look at players, I make a giant cheat sheet, spreadsheet kind of thing for myself, conditional formatting. I've got last year's stats. I've got the last two year stats combined next to that. I start clicking through and looking at individual player pages a lot as I kind of compile that list, get players where I think they should go. Then I start working on the big differences between where I'm at and where the market or where other people whose opinions I value might be at on a player. And one thing that I get stuck on right now is that 2020 is still not far enough away. It, it mattered less to me in my evaluation than a previous season ever mattered this time a year ago. Like I, I put less weight on 2020 as a immediately previous season than I ever had on a previous season before. Even the year of the rabbit ball. Once we knew the, the ball was uh, a mess in 2019, I still believed more in 2019 going into 2020 than I believed in 2020 going into 2021. I think that's for obvious reasons. Shorter season, the circumstances of the, the first pandemic season, we just didn't know how well players were adapting to protocols. It was just a strange time in general. But that season's still in the range of time that I would ordinarily care about. So if we have a player who thrived or more likely struggled in 2020, who also had a down year in 2021, that's messing with me in the absolute worst way because I'm trying to weight it appropriately. And now if I was weighting it less than, let's say, again, a Marcel projection looks back at the last three years, if it was less than 50% as the previous season a year ago, I think I came in closer to maybe a quarter of the value of the previous data I was looking at, how could I still account for it without making it zero? <laughs> Why does it matter? Like, what should I still care about from 2020? I guess is is the question I keep coming to when I'm looking at certain players. An example might be Christian Yelich, you know, because his 2021 was a down year anyway, and his 2020 he was coming off that knee injury that wasn't good either. It was even worse in terms of his slash line than what we saw. Uh, just this past season. So what are you doing with 2020 as a, a data point that's still recent enough to be considered, but probably less important than it should be as the season that was two years ago? 
I'm almost giving it no weight at all, DVR. Um, you know, because either either it's going to be a year that falls in line with what came before and with last season, or it's, you know, in a lot of cases, it's going to give you maybe just a, a little extra confirmation from what you saw in, in 2021. Uh, but if it just doesn't make sense, <laughs> you know, if it's just an outlier, then for me anyway, it's really easy to just say, well, yeah, of course it's an outlier. It's a short season. It's, um, and, you know, looking back to, I mean, I, I think I so wanted to be in, invested in 2020 as like a real season that it, I'm, I'm appreciating much more now than I did then. Like how small of a sample of games that was, I mean, two months, <laughs> two months mm-hmm. of a season. So you know, now with that in hindsight, it's it's a lot easier for me to just say, you know, you can toss that out for all the reasons that you listed, DR, you know, that it, not only the the small number of games, but, um, you know, teams missing uh, large chunks of games, you know, in a few cases because of uh, uh, protocols, uh, the late start to the season, which, you know, is still, you know, for us going to be sort of a black box in terms of trying to understand how did that affect players conditioning? How did it affect their health? How did it just affect mechanics and things like that? I have no idea. So the easiest thing for me to do is, is uh, ignore it in, in almost all situations. I mean, if for somebody, just an example, top of mind where maybe I don't ignore it would be um, somebody like Austin Riley, who, if you just looked at 2020 in a vacuum, uh, you know, it looks like a little mini breakout, but that breakout continued into 2021. So yeah, that's, that's something that I'll give a little bit of weight to, but otherwise I am sort of ignoring it. I guess for me, it would have to be the compromise would probably be something like looking at underlying skills and discounting the results because the results were so noisy in 60 games or less in the case of a lot of players. If you had an injury or if you did have a bout with COVID that year, your season might have been 40 games. And how often are we drawing meaningful conclusions from any 40-game sample? I mean, that that's that's part of what's on my mind. I think using the Yelich example, in 2020, he had a barrel rate that was in line with his 2018 numbers when he was great. He was the NL MVP that year. So if I kind of nitpick and, and find some things in that season that hold up a little better. Maybe the power drop we saw in 2021 with the barrel rate going down to 7.6%, maybe that's less of a long-term concern than it appears when you start to dig further into the numbers. Maybe that's the best way to look at it. Riley's a good positive example of that because he did show um, increased plate skills. I mean, We saw Mm -hmm. a better K rate, better walk rate that year from him, and he was still hitting the ball very hard, so uh, the the rumblings of a possible breakout were there, but even that I kind of feel like we're we have more of the puzzle, and because we have more of the puzzle, we're we're almost using it as as narrative more than than something we could say. Well, this is super stable, and this is really helpful to to use. There's not a good there's not a good application across the board, is what I'm finding, and I think the the worst of all from 2020 that's still re- like even more problematic the lack of a minor league season and the impact that that had on prospects. I think that was really clear to see in 2021 minor league results. I think we've had a a situation where in 2021, the level of competition between the big leagues and AAA was probably as wide as it's ever been. And it leaves us with a lot of questions going into 2022 about how much we can and how much we should trust some of the top prospects in the game as we expect them to arrive. Uh, I think the most prominent example by ADP is Bobby Witt Jr. And on Rates and Barrels on Monday, Eno and I just had our shortstop preview. We just started that whole series. The problem I have with Bobby Witt, really from a 2020 perspective, is even less about a previous missing minor league season. It's that shortstop is loaded, and I don't see a lot of good reasons to take added risk on an unproven player, but the fact that his missing 2020, I mean, it, the way I guess I would look at it with Witt is if there were a 2020 minor league season, he may have had his 2021 season then, and we may have seen him debut already. It, it may have just delayed the timetable entirely, but I'm as skeptical as I've ever been about prospects debuting, even if they are tooled up players with 
lots of ways to make value, which I would say is a fair description of what Bobby Witt Jr. is likely to be as a big league player sooner rather than later. Yeah, and I think that that uh, you know caution or skepticism is something that's that's usually you know warranted. And you know, if you go back to last year and Jared Kelnick, um, you know, it's just it's it's difficult to tell under more normal circumstances who is going to adapt quickly and who might take a year or two and and who might not ever meet up to expectations. And so. You know, seeing where Bobby Witt is going within inside uh, the top 100 uh, in a very, very deep sh- uh, shortstop pool, as you mentioned, I I don't see myself having a lot of Bobby Witt this year. Uh, I think that's just, you know, for me, kind of cementing a long standing uh, aversion to taking prospects that early. It's really interesting, too, because if you look at a rookie leaderboard for hitters, WRC plus last year, the best rookies, Frank Schwindel. A 152 WRC plus, less than a half season um, old. You know, a, a quad A guy through and through prior to last season. Randy Arozarena, um, old, had already debuted. Obviously, late 2020 had a great postseason. You know, wasn't wasn't a young rookie by any stretch of the imagination. Wander, who for years was a consensus number one overall prospect. I mean, speaks to just how good he might be that he came up and had as much success as he did. But then you get you know, Gavin Sheets, Jonathan India, who, who played college ball and had injuries in the minors. You know, his As surprising as his 20-homer season was a year ago, another older sort of player, Tyro Estrada, a little more of a journeyman, Lamont Wade Jr., Connor Joe, Jesus Sanchez. I mean, these, these, are not, these are not young prospects. These are not, for the most part, with the exception of Wander, these are not young guys that were highly coveted who came up right away and had immediate success. You mentioned Kelnick before. Uh, he showed progress over the course of the season. By the end of the year, he was starting to put it together to the point where if you gave him three more months last season, his second half might have been good. He may have been above average in terms of WRC+. That was the trajectory it seemed like he was on. Uh, but I just think there's going to be a learning curve even for the best of the best prospects on the hitting side. And I don't think Bobby Witt Jr. is going to be exempt from that. The thing that makes it possible to consider him in redraft leagues is the speed. I mean, 29 steals between AA and AAA last year. He was 15 for 18 in Omaha in 62 games. I think if you look at him and say, with projections, there's a wide range of batting averages. The bad X has him at 248. Zips has him at 268. I would definitely skew to the low side because of the swing and miss that we saw in double-A and triple-A, a low to mid 20% K rate in the upper levels of the minor leagues ordinarily doesn't scare me off from a player, but we're seeing a lot of guys who strike out that much in the minors get to the big leagues, and that, that strikeout rate soars above 30%. And mm-hmm. it's just so hard to... You have to make so much hard contact to get away with a K rate that high that I'm skeptical of the batting average for this season. As a result, I think he may get buried in the lineup as he figures some things out. And Kauffman Stadium is not a great power environment, so I'm very skeptical of the power in the short term, even though he popped 33 homers in the minors a year ago. So plenty of ways for him to make value, but it's really just the bigger picture that has me nervous about Bobby Witt Jr., even more nervous than I would be in a typical year. Um, I think the thing that we saw last year, though, that was encouraging from a prospect perspective was the success of pitchers, especially guys that hadn't even had opportunities to pitch much in the upper levels of the minor leagues. I mean, Alec Manoa, I think, is a great example of that. Just cruised through the minors and was great. Uh, Shane McClanahan didn't have a lengthy track record in the minor leagues. He came up and looked filthy. And I, I think the the threshold for what we're looking for from a pitcher versus a hitter, when we're talking about prospects, is a little bit different. I think it's almost it's an easier, acceptable level for a starting pitcher to hit than it is for an everyday position player to hit. Yeah, I, I think there's probably truth in that, but there's also, uh, I think there've been other years where there's been seemingly a lot more variability in terms of the the performance of, of rookie pitchers. So I, I think there's risk there too. I, you know, I'm picking nits here because I, I do agree with what you're saying that, um, you know, I, I do trust the the rookie cops uh, on the mound a little bit more <laughs> than than at the plate, but um, 
yeah, it's it's you know, and plus too, it's a different thing when you're, especially when you're, you're comparing something like shortstop, where you just you don't really have to take risk. It's like the only, it feels like the only position actually where we don't really have to take risk, and we can wait and still get quality. Uh, but with pitching, you know, it's always uh, last few years been a really dicey proposition after about the first twenty or so off the board. I just I think it's funny that the market is so aggressive with Bobby Witt Jr. And I think when you look at the pitching side, I'm not sure there's a consensus top pitching prospect, but if I if I had to say like one name that I think people genuinely believe is going to be a really good big league pitcher and it's not going to take long, it's Grayson Rodriguez. And to me, it's just funny that, that Grayson Rodriguez has an ADP outside the top 400. I know Baltimore's Baltimore. They're, they're moving the fences, which will help a little. It's going to help right. lefties more than it's going to help righties. But a possible four-pitch guy with velo like that, I can't imagine they're going to wait long to bring him up. I think the reason why I'm, I'm erring more on the side of believing in young pitching than young hitting right now, too, is that I think it's easier from a player development perspective to identify when a player is truly ready. You could, I think there's so much technology now with pitching. You can look at a pitch, and you can see its characteristics, and you can more easily, with data, verify that it's in fact a major league ready pitch. And I think with Grayson Rodriguez, an arsenal that's four deep, with command, with velo, that to me is a guy that comes up right away and figures it out about as quickly as you can. And I just think the price, the risk reward is is so much in our favor as, as a late dart where you may not have to wait more than a couple of weeks. It's almost a no-brainer. Like so much of this comes back to cost each and every year. Right. Where and when are you going to take these chances? But for me, the thing that's really unique is it's it's shifted a little bit. Where I used to not be that interested in rookie pitchers, it, it's almost even in terms of like the type of of risk profile I'm willing to take on hitter versus pitcher if I'm rounding out the the back half of my roster. Yeah, uh, you know, and I just uh, as you were. Uh, you know, talking about some of the pitchers who who really uh, you know hit it in the in the first season last year. Uh, you know, I was trying to remember you know who who um, who kind of flamed out. You know, Spencer Howard. You know, pretty pretty terrible season for him. But, you know, a couple of uh, rookies that came up with a lot of fanfare for the Royals and Lynch and Coar. Um, so you know, a lot of excitement, uh, particularly around those two Royals pitchers. But, you know, there's virtually no risk if you're talking about a late rounder, which is, you know, what's going to take to get a a Grayson Rodriguez or, you know, most of the the rookies that you'd be targeting. Um, There's really nothing much to lose there. It's just it's sort of funny when I think about Witt and where he's going right now, because I think about the Tout Wars draft that I did a year ago and I took uh, Wander Franco very, very late. And really just as, as insurance. And, but it's kind of with the same logic of, okay, well, I was able to get him this late. Really no risk. And I remember some people kind of questioning questioning that pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, but I just think that it's, you know, whoever it is, it's it's pretty defensible when your alternative is somebody who just might be, you know, somebody that you could be dropping within a couple of weeks anyway. I feel bad being the... I don't really want to draft Bobby Witt Jr. guy, but I'm not I'm not saying he's not going to be good. I'm just saying the, this situation is one that I, I just feel like risk-reward is is not in our favor, uh, even though he might be a superstar in a couple of years. Like, I just, I can't, I can't pass on Carlos Correa or Corey Seager or some of those guys when they fall to take Witt because Witt can also steal bases. Like, that... That doesn't satisfy it for me. Like I'll try to get some steals earlier. I'll try to get steals from multiple players. I don't need to get 25 or 30 from any one player if I'm doing a good job getting 8, 10, 12, 15 throughout most uh, of my core of hitters. But even some of the the less heralded pitchers, you know, I mentioned uh, McClanahan and, and Manoa, Trevor Rogers. You know, I came up previously at the end of 20 at the end of 2020 and. Uh, he took a massive step forward in 2021. Luis Garcia in Houston. Logan Gilbert's ERA tanked late. I think he showed underlying numbers, though, that make us pretty excited for the future, right? Over a strikeout per inning, a good walk rate, had a little bit of a home run problem. But with the velo he has, the command he has, there's lots of things to like there. Tanner Houck, I think, was a pleasant surprise. We all just wanted the Red Sox to give him more chances, and they kind of used him as more of an up-and-down guy last year. Uh, Ian Anderson, I think, had a pretty nice follow-up to what he did 
upon arrival. So there's there's a good amount of depth in that young pitching. It's, it's actually kind of surprising that you mentioned the Royals as a couple of guys that disappointed. Casey Mize, you know, he was up all year. He, he had a sub four ERA, but the Ks weren't there. He had a little bit of a home run issue. Like it, it's surprising to me that Mize is a guy that went 1-1, didn't finish with some of these less heralded pitching prospects who who didn't get as much development time uh, in the minor leagues. Yeah, yeah, no, that was uh, that whole uh, youth movement with the Tigers was more accelerated than I thought it would be, and it really you know positioned them this year, I think, to to try to uh, you know maybe compete for for a postseason berth. Uh, it's an exciting story, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see how um, how Mize does this season, and uh, same with Tarek Skubal too, who had a really just kind of crazy twenty twenty one season, mm-hmm. so up and down, where for weeks at a stretch he really looked practically elite and then uh, other times just couldn't keep the ball in the park and wasn't really all that effective. So just, you know, not so much, I guess, uh, fantasy relevant, but just, you know, from a real baseball situation, I do find uh, the Tigers to be a really, really interesting team going into 2022. Very watchable at the very least. And there's a chance that they could hang around and maybe do some things similar to what we saw from the Mariners a a year ago. I think they could be that kind of team that we get to the last couple of weeks of the season, and they're within a couple of games of a playoff spot. Probably a wild card, but hey, you, you never know. That's a, it's a nice step. If you've been watching the Tigers the last few years, that is not a place you've been in September for quite a long time. I think the other related question here is, once you get to the later part of your draft, like even if you think the, the conditions are not right to draft Bobby Witt, does the lack of that 2020 minor league season give you pause even later? Are you more likely to take a flyer on a 25-year-old guy that's getting more of an opportunity than usual? I'm thinking of like a Lane Thomas type player in a redraft league. Are you more likely to throw darts at players like that? Or are you more likely to say O'Neill Cruz had one of the hardest hit batted balls of 2021 when he came up and the Pirates have no one blocking him or... Julio Rodriguez could be a superstar like Witt and he's going 150 picks later in some drafts. Like, Do you still have an interest in top end bats or Spencer Torkelson, who might be a really nice high floor guy that's going to be up pretty soon after the season begins as part of that that young Tigers core? Like, do you still Do you still have some interest in guys that are at least falling outside the top 200 who have not debuted yet? I absolutely do. And and I think that's just the right uh, kind of over underline to set, you know, around pick 200, because at that point, then, yeah, you are talking about alternatives, maybe being somebody like Elaine a, a Thomas. Uh, and yeah, I, I certainly would much rather go for the player with the much higher upside and uh, with, with the clearer path. I mean, if it's a situation where it's, it's a, a prospect that maybe, um, there's, there's not as, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm second guessing myself as I'm saying this DVR, because again, I'm going back to Wander Franco, where you looked at that Ray's infield situation this time last year. And you thought, well, where are that bats going to come from? And of course it's Wander Franco. So they're going to figure it out at some point. And obviously they did, but that was a little bit, I think of a, of a concern. So I think in situations like that, maybe I, I hesitate a little bit, but, uh, I, I think in cases where, uh, there's, there's going to be a clear path to playing time. I'll I'll certainly be targeting those players, uh, pick 200 and beyond. See, I think that's where I'm at with Julio Rodriguez in particular, because you look at Seattle's outfield and you can you can talk yourself into it being crowded if you want to be optimistic about health, mostly. I look at that outfield and say they'll just make room for Rodriguez as soon as he's available. And as a team that did have a, a late season window toward the postseason, they want to keep bringing players up. They want to keep taking steps forward. By projection, I can't believe this, but he was their third best hitter when I looked at the, I think it was the bat projections like a week or so ago. So if already as a rookie, you have a guy that could be that much of an impact player, someone who's that much of an upgrade over guys you're playing every day, I don't know how long you can wait. I know he hasn't played at AAA yet. He only had 46 games at AA. But he was fantastic. There was power. There was speed. The hit tool has shown more development than some people expected as well. He looks like a guy that's going to be a future first-rounder for us. It's just a question of when. And if we're talking about Rodriguez at pick 250, I'm more than okay with that risk. And if it look, I think you have to go into this with the, the mindset you can have. Let's just say it's a typical roster, 12-team league. 
14 hitters, nine pitchers, seven bench spots. I think you can have at least one spot at the beginning of the year that can go to someone who's not helping you right now. It could be a prospect like Rodriguez, who we expect to be playing at Tacoma then. It could be a player coming back from a relatively minor injury who might be available two or three weeks into the season. I think you get one roster spot that you can use that way. I used to think you could have more because I thought, well, you could have all four of these guys hit. You could have a couple injured guys and a couple prospects, and the prospects come up and they're good right away, and the injured guys are completely healthy. Way too much wish casting. You lose out on on flexibility those first few lineup periods. You lose out on production, and then you start chasing sooner than you want to start chasing. You get one shot, and I think when I take that one shot, I want the ceiling to be high enough where it, the payoff is is worth it. And Rodriguez, I think, fits that description. He's one of the rare talents. Wander was this way. I think even Kyle Tucker was this way at one point where he was down at AAA because of the power-speed combo. And basically what I'm, what I'm describing is a ceiling like Bobby Witt Jr.'s, but a price that's not like Bobby Witt Jr. So no, this is not the anti-Bobby Witt Jr. podcast. This is the pro-Julio Rodriguez podcast. <laughs> You can't tell me that he's going to he's, he's going to get blocked by Jake Fraley and Kyle Lewis. And right now they've got a floating DH spot, so you've got that to account for. They could play Ty France every day at first base and just not play Evan White at all. That wouldn't be uncalled for, I think, based on what we've seen from from Evan White to this point. You make it work. It's the same as it was with the Rays and Wander. You make it work. You make a trade. Oh my goodness, it's Jerry Depoto. Jerry Depoto loves to make trades. So if you're wish casting a trade, this is a good place to do it. <laughs> and I think you can look very easily at that depth chart and say they don't even have to do that. They could make Jake Fraley a fourth outfielder, make Rodriguez a fixture in a corner, and you know Kyle Lewis is the DH if he's healthy, and Ty France is the first baseman. And that's it. And you, Everything's good, and you, you have your, your path right there. You know, the, uh, Rodriguez, I realize this is not really at all what you're talking about, DVR, but Rodriguez is an interesting case uh, at a potential dilemma late in the draft because I'm looking at NFBC ADPs right now and Anthony Santander is in that neighborhood. And yes, Lane Thomas is too, but so is Mark Canna, um, Mike Yastrzemski. So we've had had some players fall uh, to you know where we wouldn't have expected them a year ago. Jesus Sanchez is going fairly well ahead of um, Rodriguez, and that's that's a, that's a situation where you've got a couple of uh, unknowns players with with some variability in terms of what you can expect this year. And to me, it's a no brainer that you go for Rodriguez there. But if you have the chance to pick up a you know a, a Canna or a Santander, uh, you know I think maybe I'm hoping that Rodriguez slides uh, to to the reserve rounds. Yeah, he might slide, but I feel like the the types of players you can get. Just a couple rounds later, like if you if you draft him and it looks like he's your fourth or fifth outfielder when you take him, there's still enough interesting players with good paths to playing time that go even later that I think you can use as your early season lineup options. And I, I mean, a few names that I think stand out to me. I think Connor Joe actually is good value right now. The Rockies are garbage. Connor Joe should play a lot. Like he, he was impressive at the end of the year. Andrew McCutcheon probably going to play somewhere. There's plenty of teams that need a little left field upgrade. I think he'd be fine as a, a short-term stopgap. He goes about 60 to 70 picks later. Uh, Randall Gritchick plays a lot. Brandon Marsh, I think, is going to play a lot in center field for the Angels. I know he was coming off a shoulder injury last year, so I think he could hit the ground running this year. So I just see a good mix of, of options that go late that I'm I'm fine drafting those guys as bench outfielders and then just swapping them in for someone like Rodriguez if he ends up on a bunch of my teams this year. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on from prospects, though, for a bit, Al. Let's talk about the possible delay in spring training, lost games, and then the impact of the current lockout on currently rehabbing players because there's there's a lot of uncertainty about what players are able to do and how much information or, or how much guidance they're getting from medical staffs because technically they're not supposed to be getting any. So if you have a player coming off of Tommy John surgery or a torn ACL it's a bit of an unknown. Now, we know there are independent training facilities where players can go. There are certainly other physicians and healthcare professionals that a player could see that could help them through rehab. So I, I don't think they're completely on their own and, and you know sitting on the couch playing FIFA and, and just doing stuff that, that I would do with, with that sort of downtime. But uh, does the way the lockout impacts certain groups of players, does that change anything for you uh, either early in drafts or with a specific injuries that you're you're more concerned about uh, i wouldn't say specific injuries per se but uh you know just the you know a couple of cases that you sort of alluded to there with uh, tommy john and you know with justin verlander or uh torn acl which uh you know obviously that's uh the the issue that uh ronald acuna jr is dealing with and it just it makes me very nervous like i, I can't say that uh, you know make me more nervous than you know vis-a-vis you know some other type of injury but just the lack of information. And I think just to me, it does make sense given that, you know, we don't know what sort of, um, you know, workouts or, or, you know, rehabs that they're, that they're doing that might be different from what they normally would. Uh, it, it just makes me very, you know, very averse to, um, to reaching for any type of player in that situation. So I, I don't think I'm alone in that. So I don't think that you're necessarily going to miss out on uh, you know some of these players who are really big injury risks go, going into this year. Yeah, I keep looking at these these types of players, and I think it's for me the guys I'm more worried about are the midseason. This is a group of players I don't normally go after much anyway, but the guys that are not necessarily going to be ready for opening day anyway. I think of like a Dustin May, for example, someone that you expect to come back later in the year from Tommy John surgery. I'm a little more skeptical of players like that as a group. Uh, it's a small cross-section of players, but I just think they're the guys that get hurt the most by this. Like, I just ha- I have a hard time believing that Atlanta's medical staff isn't communicating with Ronald Acuna Jr. somehow. Like that, that just seems very odd to me. I know there was a video that surfaced maybe within the last week of him taking batting practice. Instagram is our friend this time of year, apparently, because... We get to see clips of players with no context, but they're doing things. They're 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 active, right? It's better to see Acuna swinging the bat and making a loud contact in a cage than to not see it. Even if even if you don't do anything actionable with it, it's just a, a tick in the right direction. Okay, well he's doing some things that he should be able to do at this point, but coming off a torn ACL, everybody wants to see him run the bases in a spring training game at full speed. Uh, you know that that would give us a better indicator of of where things are at. I think, and if we only have a two week spring training, it's going to be a, a scramble in a lot of ways to figure out how healthy are some of these guys coming off of of devastating injuries just a year ago. Of course, the other part of this, we had this transaction frenzy back in November. The lockout happened. Of course, everything went on hold. We still have some impact players that are out there. And you think about Trevor Story, someone who's likely leaving Colorado. Well, okay, that's a probably a downgrade, but not necessarily because he might end up in a place where he's got a much better supporting cast. He might be in a above-average hitter's park instead of a great hitter's park with a great lineup around him. And he might be on a team that likes to run, which could pop up those stolen bases even a bit more. So I just think that's the other part of this this lockout that's pretty frustrating is that you have a lot of key players that end up being projected into neutral environments. Freddie Freeman, everyone assumes he's going back to Atlanta. I don't think we should assume that. He's part of this as well. And we've got uh, 
Seiya Suzuki coming over from Japan. At least that's the expectation. That's a big free agent signing. I'd like to know where he's going to play and what the playing time situation looks like there. I mean, there's a pretty good cluster of guys that still don't have a team on February 1st as a result of this. Yeah, and I think Story maybe is a little bit of a special case among that group because, like you say, that uh, you know some of his value came from playing in Coors Field for, for his home games. But uh, you know, for for a lot of these players, you know, whether it's you know Freddie Freeman or, or Carlos Correa, uh, you know, you can you know pretty much expect uh, that they're they're going to be who they've been. But there's there's a bit of a domino effect there too. That uh, you know, if you a team signs Carlos Correa, who does that push out mm-hmm. and so yeah, it's it's you know definitely dicey <laughs> drafting uh, during the lockout uh, to be sure because it's it's not just the the free agents who may be affected in terms of where they're going. Yeah, it's trickle down trades that might also uh, mm-hmm. be problematic where someone ends up in a, a worse situation because of a signing and then ends up in a better one because they got traded. Look, that that's going to happen in a matter of weeks as opposed to a matter of months. We're just not going to have that much of a run up to to assess those situations. So there could be opportunities to to lose a lot of value. There could be some opportunities to fall into a lot of value too, but I just find that to be pretty frustrating. And, you know, one thing that I think is is also unique about this year with all the injuries, guys, even guys that came back from injuries in 2021 and, and showed us that they were mostly themselves, it's a more injury-packed early round board than I can recall really seeing maybe ever. And I hate being the guy that makes everything that just happened seem like it's it's unprecedented, but I do think the the numbers bear it out. There were more injuries than we've ever seen in the last at least five years from the last uh, last chart I was looking at. Fernando Tatis Jr., a possible one one guy, had the shoulder injury, came back, played at a level where people are still comfortable taking him with the first overall pick. I totally understand why. We don't know how healthy that shoulder is going to be in the long run. It, it seems more like a a when not if sort of thing with surgery but he played so well maybe it doesn't matter maybe it's just one of those things he could manage for a while we mentioned Acuna Mike Trout missed so much time last year projections still love him but he's sliding to the one-two turn in a lot of leagues right now I, I just something about that is jarring to me when when Trout is still sitting there at the back of round one my brain can't calm down. It's like, no, you have to take Trout here. You you can't possibly leave him for someone else if he's there at, at pick 13 or pick 14 or pick 15. And that seems to happen somewhat regularly now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's just a lot of movement within the first couple of rounds more than, and like you said, you know, maybe it's just selective memory on each of our parts, but it does feel like there's there's been a lot more movement in the upper part of the draft board. Uh, at least so far. And I think, you know, for good reason. And, you know, you look at at Trout and it's not only just all the time that he missed with injury last year and what kind of health he'll be in when, uh, whenever this season starts. But I mean, he, he had kind of a banana season when he did play last year, strikeout rate way up, Um, you know, a a great batting average, but, you know, boosted by a a bat, but that was above 450. Um, so, you know, obviously some small sample artifacts there, but even for the relatively small sample of games, I mean, just stats that are just hard to make sense of. Uh, and, you know, just a lot of the players that you mentioned, DVR, either because of injury or, uh, you know, just a, a negative recency bias, you know, in the, and I think both of those things are affecting Trout, you know, Yelich and Bellinger getting huge, huge penalties for their their recent performance so far in early ADP. Um it, it right away. I mean, it's not like, oh, okay, well, you know, I definitely want one of the first five or six picks because I know I'm golden <laughs> with whoever I get there. It's sort of like right at one, one, like, sheesh, you know, what, which, which risk am I going to take? You know, am I going to take the, the risk of Tatis uh, not being healthy all year? Or am I going to, you know, take the risk of, um, you know, Trey Turner regressing or Juan Soto um, precluding me from having more, you know, more steals. So right away, there's just, you know, dilemmas at, at every pick. I like Turner. If I get the the one one, I, I think we've seen him in good lineups before in Washington, but this might be the best lineup he's ever been in with the Dodgers. Even even with Seager gone, they they might be a team that does get one of those splashy free agents, right? And then they get a bounce back from Mookie Betts. They get a bounce back from Cody Bellinger, and and suddenly the Dodgers are still the Dodgers even without Seager, even if they don't go big. Maybe they get Gavin Lux to take a step forward. I've been hoping for that for 
three years now, I think. So maybe it's time to, to give up the dream on that one a little bit. But all that is to say, I mean, I think with, with speed being still as scarce as it's been now for a few years, with the power that Trey Turner has shown, I think still being pretty reliably, at least in the low 20s home run level, I think a 2035 or a 2040 season is still on the table for him. And he does it with a great batting average too. Like it's it's a it is a rare can do everything skill set, and I'm I'm very comfortable with him in that spot. I think health risk is pretty moderate. I looked it up yesterday. He's within the top 25 in plate appearances over the last three seasons combined. So obviously it's high in the order and has been in good lineups, but injury risk is pretty light compared to a lot of other players. And maybe because there's so much risk with other early rounders, uh, I would like as little injury risk as possible at the very top of the board. So that, that for me is why I'm, I'm turning over to Tease if I end up with that choice anywhere. Uh, but I think if you're building an auction team or if you do have one of those later picks, there are so many ways you can go. Uh, it makes things a, a lot of fun. And I look at Acuna versus Trout. I just I can't believe that's a decision we're making in the back of the first round as opposed to the front. And Mookie Betts is back there too. I mean, you could end up with two yeah. of those players from the wheel. That seems like a fantastic way to start off a team. If you have confidence in the pitchers that'll be there at the 3-4 turn, or if you're the kind of person who likes waiting on pitching entirely, I think you can do really well. I think the the hardest thing about the early rounds, even more than some of the, the position player stories like this, Jacob deGrom and Shane Bieber are so problematic for me. Like As it stands right now, as of February 1st, Jacob deGrom is pretty much off my board unless he falls to a level that he never falls to. It's because it's a total mystery box for me. I have no idea where he's at health-wise right now. I worry that he's the kind of guy that has sat so close to his max velocity so often that he's done legitimate damage to his arm. And I, I think there's also some mistrust of the Mets in there. It's remarkable. Like if If we knew he were healthy, he'd probably be the first overall pick in drafts right now, given the state yeah. of everything else. People would say, you know what? I got the 1-1. I'm taking DeGrom. But until we have more information, and for that, for, for me, that's probably seeing multiple spring outings where the velo is there, the command is there, and he's going on a regular schedule, I can't really commit to him as a top 25, top 30 overall pick, which is what it takes to get him right now. And it, it, it sucks because he could be could be amazing if he's 2018 or 2019 DeGrom and you're getting him there you're crushing people that's a that's a huge leg up over the competition to have a 40 plus dollar pitcher in that range yeah that's interesting I, you came out much more uh I'd say negative on on DeGrom than I was really expecting um because I you know yeah for if you have to take him in the second round I mean that's you're taking him you know, most likely as an SP one. And that's, that's a lot of risk to be taking. Um, but, you know, I'm looking at in NFBC, his, his max uh, pick is 54. <laughs> so if you just happen to get lucky, you know, and you've got, uh, you know, uh, an Aaron Nola DeGrom kind of dilemma or, uh, you know, Robbie Ray. I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think I, I'm still going to Grom there. If he's falling into that range, yeah, the looking at the last two weeks, the latest he's gone is pick 41. At 41, I'm doing it. At that point, I can feel like I, I've done okay. At 41, I've already thought about my first closer. Like, So, <laughs> I mean, if I'm willing to draft a closer in the third round, and I am in the right circumstances, then I should be willing to draft DeGrom if he falls there. The average draft position is sitting at 24 right now. Yeah. Really, really tough to do that. And there's a lot of pitchers I don't like in the early rounds from either a health perspective or uh, this is the highest price they've ever been perspective. I'm looking at you, Robbie Ray. I, I don't think Robbie Ray is going to turn to a pumpkin. I also don't want to be the person that's paying top dollar for what we saw from him a year ago. I think Seattle ended up being a great landing spot compared to you know, Kevin Gossman going from San Francisco to Toronto. I, I feel relatively better about Ray's chances of, of holding the gains we saw from him a year ago, holding most of them. But Ray's a player that I'm generally not interested in at the price. 
Uh, I would say Gossman, 20 picks later, is a guy that I'm not going after. I, I don't, in Bieber, like Bieber's sitting right up there with DeGrom. What are you doing with Shane Bieber at this point? Do you, do you have to, I mean, you probably have to change how you would ordinarily backfill behind guys like DeGrom and Bieber if you are comfortable taking them at that price. It requires you to take a lot more pitching in the early rounds than you ordinarily would have to taking someone with their ceilings. Yeah, and the last couple of seasons with the scarcity that I I referred to earlier, I haven't liked loading up on pitching early. Uh, So that makes me really nervous. So... Yeah, I mean, both of them would, would have to fall, I think, to the, the area that we were talking about, like probably into the 40s uh, and, and definitely looking at them as an SP2 at that point so that you've, you've already got to take a, a pitcher, you know, in, in round one or two uh, to set that up. And then you're probably still maybe being a little bit more aggressive, even with them falling, uh, having to, to be a little bit more aggressive to backfill. And yeah, I, I guess... Uh, in reality, I'm probably not going to be taking either one uh, very often, if at all, because that's a situation that I'm I'm not going to want to be boxed into. Yeah, that's where I'm at right now. Again, maybe more information in the form of healthy Cactus League and grapefruit innings could change sure. some of that tune, but um, a nice discount if they end up being healthy, but I, I'm not currently taking that discount. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? (laughs) You mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The other part of all this that is really strange is that the closer by committee approach is really becoming more normalized. Uh, it, it's become increasingly difficult to find bullpens that are controlled in the ninth inning by one really good reliever. And what we're seeing is as much inflation as ever on top end closers. Part of that is because a lot of the leagues that are happening to this point are draft and hold leagues. You don't have in-season moves. You can't churn the bottom of the roster and take chances in fab and and get your saves that way. But I don't think we're going to see much of a drop on the likes of Hayter and Liam Hendricks and Rysel Iglesias and Emmanuel Classe and Edwin Diaz and Ryan Presley, all of whom are carrying ADPs pretty firmly inside the top 75 overall right now. So if we're talking about a 15-team league, those are all going within the first five rounds. I mean, the, the Hendricks-Hater combo frequently goes in the later part of mid to late round three. Like, that is different for sure. Mm-hmm. I've been willing to play this way in the past. This was, this was part of the, the panel I was on at PitchCon. So I keep testing this out to find out what does it cost me when I take one of Hater or Hendricks and I go back again in maybe two rounds and try to get Class A or Presley or any one of those circle of trust closers that I like. I mean, maybe a Roldis Chapman still fits in there. Uh, I would say the bottom end of that group goes all the way down to like pick 100. Jordan Romano to me actually looks like he's maybe got elite skills without elite job security, but he's got, I think, above average job security. I am finding so far when I go through these processes of, of building a team, I'm not getting burned taking two closers early. It doesn't mean you have to do it. It doesn't mean you have to... You, you could skip that plan entirely. But I, I feel like if I'm not going to get punished for taking two really good closers and, and locking up what should be a top four finish in the category with room for more, if I'm not going to get punished for that, why wouldn't I do it? You know, If there's not an opportunity cost that is overwhelmingly high, if I'm not coming up light on speed or building a roster where I feel like I don't have enough starting pitching... 
I'm going to keep doing that over and over again until I have a reason not to. So how do you feel like you're pulling that off? Because I, I can't really speak to my own experience with that because the last few years, really the last couple of years, especially, uh, I, I my, probably my most aggressive move has been to go after one top closer and then one sort of second tier job security, but not you know overwhelming skills type of closer to just you know try to solidify the save somewhat, and um, you know not have to be in a, a position of desperation through through fab or trades, uh, and, and it ha- hasn't worked out great in terms of that category. I don't think it's hurt me necessarily overall in terms of being able to compensate in other categories, but I've just sort of made the assumption that I would get penalized for going that aggressively on, on closer. So uh, do, do you have secrets to give away in terms of how we can uh, help ourselves out later in, in the draft? What's working for me so far is that I, I feel like if I'm, if I'm doing something with multiple top end closers, like I did this in an NFBC 12 with Nando and Ian a few weeks ago. So small, it, maybe, maybe it's the smaller league that makes me overconfident compared to a 15 teamer, but at a 12, I had a late first round pick. I had to pick 11. I ended up with Tucker and Mookie Betts with my first two picks. I took Liam Hendricks at the end of the third, Tim Anderson in the fourth, and then Ryan Presley in the fifth. And the reason why I did it was because I I felt like I could get enough starting pitching in the next five rounds to rally and make up for it. Because if you go two closers in the first five or six rounds, you want a really balanced group of hitters. You don't want to chase bad speed later in particular. You can't afford to take a massive hit in batting average early, so you got to be careful with which hitters you build around there as well. Maybe Tucker's a little risky in batting average. I don't think he's bad in that category. Betts could be plus in that category. Tim Anderson's plus in that category. And all three of those guys are basically do-everything players. Anderson's going to be a little light on RBIs, but I feel like if you, if you do a good job balancing top-of-the-order bats with middle-of-the-order bats, you can strike the right balance with runs and RBIs if you get some guys early who tilt a little more heavily one direction or the other. Um, so getting the truly balanced hitters in the foundation, I think, is a key. But it's believing in guys like Charlie Morton being able to do it again. Um, someone like Justin Verlander, who's further removed from Tommy John surgery, who we, we know he's back in Houston, and believing he's going to give us 150 really high quality innings coming off Tommy John. It's believing in some younger guys like Shane McClanahan and, and Shane Boz. Like even though the innings volumes probably won't be, you know, maximum workhorse volumes, being willing to bank on them as mid threes ERA guys with elite strikeout rates and knowing that in a 12 team league especially, but even in a 15 team league, I I think I'm a good enough player in season that I can use the waiver wire as extra depth. I can roster pitchers like McClanahan and Boz at their prices because I think I'm good enough at identifying effective two-start pitchers and streamers and doing it in a way where I'm not completely melting my fab budget. And I think that's sort of the trade-off that I'm, I'm deciding on is if I, if I spend up on elite closers and I get a balanced roster that I like, am I more comfortable spending on pitching all season long just to get enough innings and to get enough starts to get wins and Ks. Or if I do the opposite, if I go lighter on saves early, am I comfortable with my ability to go in and win the relievers that emerge as closers? Am I am I good at identifying those players, outbidding my league mates when they become available, uh, not throwing $250 at Julian Merriweather when it looks like he's the guy at the beginning of the season, not making those types of mistakes, I don't think I'm that good at that type of decision making. Like I, I think I'm reliably sort of bad at it, but I'm also, I'm also just acknowledging like we're as a group in in your league. How many people bid on a closer when a new closer emerges? Right. Let's just say a reliever with decent skills pops up on Wednesday, gets a couple saves, Sunday rolls around, and you're in a 15 team league. How many teams are are bidding aggressively on that one closer that just became available? Half the league, probably? Is that an exaggeration that half the league's probably oh, throwing a 10% bid in plus that's more? Probably, my leagues, that's probably conservative. If I don't feel like I can comfortably bid on those players and, and win the right ones, 
then I have to be a week early on players, which I think I'm okay at that. I think that that's a that might be a skill that I have, but that's also mm-hmm. that's a waiting game. I mean, you there's there are plenty of high skilled relievers that just don't get saves that are available every single week. I I probably had Trevor May on and off my Tout Wars roster three times last year because I just kept waiting. I'm like, oh, the next time Edwin Diaz screws up, they're going to Trevor May. On my roster, off my roster, on my roster, off my roster. And yeah, it only cost me $5 out of 1000 in fab. It's a minimal cost, but I didn't get any saves doing that. And right. I just think you can end up, you just end up getting nothing along the way. And you, I guess you're not getting nothing. You're getting the occasional win. You're getting good ratios. Those are good pitchers. But I don't like playing that way. I've tried playing that way so many times, and I'm so bad at winning those good relievers that I guess I'm trying to cover my own in-season blind spot with something that I'm doing during the draft. And there's a there's a difference between punting early closers and, and getting two, and that's just getting one, which was, I think, uh, Rudy Gamble's suggestion on the PitchCon panel. He's like, well, I, I get one, and then I target a bunch later. I think that's a totally viable strategy, and I think what we're seeing is there are a few more people in the room willing to get two right now which is going to make it very difficult for a lot of people to get more than one closer in their circle of trust. Or even just one, given how many teams are now going to, to you know, uh, splitting saves. Yeah, I was just looking at the leaderboard from last season, and there were... How many pitchers last season do you think had 10 or more saves? Uh, 25? Or, no, no, I'm sorry. I mean, um, sorry, uh, 60. You were lower than you were high. 39. Yeah, 39 players had 10 or more saves. And and a lot of that, when you go back and look through who some of these players were, it really wasn't jobs changing hands because someone coughed up the job. It was, we just don't have one person we're turning to. I think we're probably down to, what, half the league that will use one closer as much as they possibly can, if if that. It's, it's totally a, 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 a shift in the game that is, wreaked havoc on us like I, I have no I have no doubts that this is this is the direction teams are going and we're really not going back we're not going to go back to the the era of of Doug Jones and uh you know Rod Beck and, and guy like that's that's not the future of the big leagues like having just this is our guy this is our ninth inning guy nothing else matters clearly teams are realizing yeah our best reliever gets the highest leverage spot I know last year I mean the Brewers they just didn't use Josh Hader outside of the ninth inning. He didn't get multi-inning appearances last year. They changed that completely, and there's no reason at this point to think that that's going to change. If a team has enough bullpen depth where they have that kind of luxury, that to me is almost an outlier situation where you can say, there's the closer, and these three guys will mix and match in the 6th, 7th, and 8th accordingly. I, I think that's... You know, a handful of teams at most that can do that. The Dodgers probably operated like that with Kenley Jansen, but he's a free agent right now. Is Kenley going back to LA? Like, I don't think he is. I think Kenley, I think Kenley's going to end up in a place like Texas. So maybe we get lucky from a fantasy perspective and we get him into a situation where Joe Barlow's probably at the top of the depth chart right now. And you can pretty easily say, okay, Kenley's the guy. Pencil him in for 25 plus saves, mediocre ratios, decent strikeout rate. And okay, he's probably like closer 12 if that happens. But that's like the back of the circle of trust. That's like the end of the list of of guys that you would actually want. You want to get someone at or above that level. And maybe his departure, maybe Blake Trinan can be the actual closer because they have enough depth where they can say, yeah, we're going to mix and match Gratterall and Vessia and, and these, these other guys that we think are legit shutdown guys. And they also are good at finding injured relievers on the scrap heap, guys like Corey Knable and, and just turning those guys back into 90 or 100K relievers. Like the Dodgers seem to be another team kind of cut from that sort of cloth. So maybe that's another opportunity. But I just think that pool, it's so small. Like the the worst pitcher that I like for saves is Mark Melanson again. And I think it's just one of those things where I, I don't know why Arizona signed him, but if you signed him, why wouldn't you use him in that role? That that seems like the only role you would really want to have him in. 
Well, for a, a bullpen like theirs, yeah, uh, I would agree with that. Um, on another team, yeah, he could fill a variety of roles. But yeah, I, it's it's a really small list of of must have uh, closers, and uh, yeah, I, I, it's just really to be that that's a bold move to to go for two within that list, and you know, it'll be interesting to see if, if the trend that you're seeing with more people being aggressive, if that's going to persist, because that's definitely going to have, I'm going to have to find a way to counter that because like I said, I've been very content to, to get, uh, you know, a, a number one and a, a number two, that's clearly inferior. Um, and I, I may have to rethink that. Yeah. Uh, the, the committees they're, they're wreaking havoc. The counter move. I mean, if I was going to make a counter move against myself like okay you're in a room of 11 people trying to do the same thing you're doing or 14 other people trying to do the same thing that, that you're trying to do i think the key to to any any strategy you're trying to execute you have to be flexible you, you may want to have two elite closers you may not get two elite closers what happens if you don't get two who do you who do you want to get as your one if you can't even get one from the group that you like where are you throwing those darts where do you see situations where maybe it's a committee but you feel as though that committee might be lopsided right like minnesota to me is a spot i still like taylor rogers i think he's undervalued right now i think if i were in a position where i didn't necessarily have the two elite guys i wanted rogers would be a target for me at his range i mentioned melanson before Uh, maybe this time around gregory soto is a little more stable i'm cautiously optimistic because i think we all liked him from a skills perspective a year ago but he walks a lot of guys, so I, I might yeah. even hold off on him. Lucas Sims is really interesting to me. I think he's undervalued right now. I think just picking out those those four to six guys that aren't necessarily top half closers, but maybe maybe their partial share is good enough for you to get away with it. And, and maybe, look, maybe the guy they were going to share with ends up getting hurt or isn't as effective as, as we thought, and they emerge to end up with, 80% of their team saves by season's end. That's a possibility for some of these committees too. You do you do have to have a what could go right mindset when you start fishing in some of these these committees because sometimes you'll end up with a situation like San Francisco last year. I think Jake McGee was the guy that Rudy said he had a bunch of places and I'm thinking back I'm like I don't remember having Jake McGee anywhere last year. Like I just I wasn't on him at all as a source of saves and and that was one where I think you know Tyler Rogers got about a dozen saves or so, but McGee had more than 30. And if you drafted McGee where he was going, those 30 saves were huge. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's 2020 hindsight. I mean, cause I, and I was with you there. I didn't have McGee anywhere. And that, that situation, you know, developed a little bit late and, it, you know, I don't think it was really obvious to anybody that he was going to be the guy to emerge. And that's, that kind of gets back to what you're talking about DVR in terms of trusting yourself to play play the fab game with saves because like you I've historically tried to get a week or two ahead of the of the switch and it's really hard sometimes to predict what managers are going to do and how many ways uh, they might split uh, split the role if there's if there's a change ahead so uh you know I think that's why maybe there is some wisdom in in going aggressively and why I was really interested to see and how you make that work because I, otherwise, I really feel like there's there's no alternative to just getting into the into the bidding wars, um, and that you, you just have to be then you know as smart and selective as you can be because, like you say, there's you know plenty of weeks where you're you're going to throw you know maybe 150 200 dollars on somebody that that winds up being a temporary solution, and and you have to spot not only what the managerial tendencies are, but also you know who maybe is a better candidate in the long run. I've got one more specific player I want to throw out there, and I'll I'll just put it into a really simple framework. Is Corey Knable a safe closer, even if he's a mid-tier closer? He ends up in Philly. He's done it before. We've seen a nice bounce back from him during his only season with the Dodgers. I mean, we're talking about a K rate near 30% last year, the best walk rate that he's had since 2015, and the Phillies have had all sorts of problems finding a closer in recent years. So is, is Knable their solution, and is he therefore a solution for us as fantasy players where he's been going? 
Well, I, I think if what you mean by solution is, you know, somebody that you can take as the, the second closer, if you're not going super aggressive, I think he may be the best option for, for doing that. Uh, because of the the, the skill set, you you are you know taking something of an injury risk there. But that Philly bullpen, as it's currently constituted, is not very deep, uh, and it, it generally isn't. So uh, I think you know he'll probably uh, be able to to keep the job even if he struggles a bit. And I certainly would like his his chances for turning things around if he does uh, run into performance issues. Uh, for me, it's it's really his ability to stay healthy that is the biggest concern. Yeah, I, I think that's it, it's health for me, and I would say Knebel versus Melanson. I think is the the toss up I'd have. I think Melanson goes a little earlier because of what he just did last year, uh, and, and probably what seems like a little more job security. But I'm I'm really excited about Knebel possibly getting that job back because I think thirty plus saves are a possibility. I think people sleep on the Phillies a little bit, and just their their woes in the bullpen make me think that they want one guy to be that guy. They can figure everything else out. They can use their their other seemingly talented relievers who were disappointing us as closers to mix and match a little bit more in those uh, innings as the bridge up to Knebel. That is going to wrap things up for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Derek Van Riper. You can find Al at Al Melchior BB. If you've got questions for us for a future episode, drop us a line. Fantasypods at theathletic.com is our email address, but Twitter works as well. Just make it clear that it's a question for a future show. We're doing this episode on Tuesdays throughout draft season, so uh, let us know if there's anything you'd like us to talk about topic-wise where we can help shed some light on some strategies or certain players we're always happy to take questions of pretty much any kind and of course we've got under the radar coming up on friday so for el melchior i'm derek van riper we're back with you on friday As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.